Good evening. I am Prem Paul, Vice Chancellor for Research and Economic Development of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I am honored to welcome you to the Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues. For more than a quarter century, the University and the Cooper Foundation have partnered with the LEED Center for Performing Arts to bring a diversity of viewpoints on international and public policy issues to the university and people of Nebraska to promote understanding and encourage debate. We are pleased to be joined tonight by our co-sponsor for this lecture, Nebraska Innovation Campus. Nebraska Innovation Campus is a research campus designated to facilitate new and in-depth partnerships between UNL and private sector businesses. We thrive in a dynamic environment where university and private sector talent connect to transform ideas into innovation that impacts the world. This lecture series honors the late E.N. Jack Thompson, longtime president and chair of the Cooper Foundations. Few individuals were as supportive of the university as Jack. We're grateful to the Cooper Foundation, which founded the forum, for its ongoing support and to Jack and his wife, Katie, for creating a fund supporting the forum. Speakers this year are addressing the theme, the creative world. It is now my pleasure to introduce Neil Gershenfeld, who is the director of MIT's Center for Bits and Atoms. Professor Gershenfeld's unique laboratory breaks down boundaries between the digital and physical worlds from creating molecular quantum computers to virtuosic musical instruments. Technology from his lab has been seen and used in settings including New York's Museum of Modern Art and rural Indian villages, the White House and the World Economic Forum, inner city community centers and automobile safety systems, Las Vegas shows and Sami herds. He's the author of numerous technical publications, patents, and books, including Fab, When Things Start to Think, The Nature of Mathematical Modeling, and The Physics of Information Technology. He has been featured in the New York Times, The Economist, NPR, CNN, and PBS. He's a fellow of the American Physical Society, has been named one of Scientific America's 50 leaders in science and technology, as one of 40 modern-day Leonardos by the Museum of Science and Industry, and by Prospect Foreign Policy as one of the top 100 public intellectuals. Gershenfeld has a bachelor's in physics from Swarthmore College, a PhD in applied physics from Cornell University, and honorary doctorates from Swarthmore College and Starts Clyde University. He was a junior fellow of the Harvard University Society of Fellows and a member of the research staff at Bell Labs. After Professor Gershenfeld's remarks, you'll have the opportunity to ask questions. So please write them on the cards provided by the ushers or submit questions by Twitter using the hashtag ENThompsonForum. The discussion of your ideas and questions will be moderated by UNL professor and Thompson Forum 
Committee Chair Lloyd Ambrosius. Following this lecture, Professor Neil Gershenfeld will be in the lobby to autograph books. The title of tonight's presentation is How to Make Almost Anything. Please join me in welcoming Neil Gershenfeld. Thank you. So I'm delighted to join you. I want to talk about the future of making things. And tonight I'll make some very bold predictions about the present. I'm going to tell you stories about what's actually happening, but you may not realize. So at MIT, I teach a class called How to Make Almost Anything. And this wasn't meant to be provocative. I started the program I direct, the Center for Bits and Atoms, because I could never tell the difference between hardware and software, computer science and physical science. I, I didn't fit at that boundary. And so we wrote an ambitious NSF proposal to get one of every machine to make anything. And we got NSF on a good day, and they said yes. But then we had all these machines, and it would take a lifetime to learn to use them. So I started this class just to teach a few research students how to use the machines. And I had a problem. Hundreds of students showed up, and I hadn't planned for that. I hadn't asked them. Hundreds of students showed up. That was the first surprise. The next surprise that shouldn't be surprising is they were there to make things. They weren't there for research. They weren't there for businesses. They wanted to make stuff. And then the surprise after that was what they did. So one of the stars the first year was Kelly. She was a sculptor. They did semester projects. Uh, this is Kelly's project. Hi, I'm Kelly, and this is my screen body. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you really have to scream, but you can't because you're at work, or you're in a classroom, or you're watching your children, or you're in any number of situations where it's just not permitted? Well, Screen Body is a portable space for screaming. When a user screams into Screen Body, their scream is silenced. But it is also recorded for later release, where, when, and how the user chooses. This was another project. Um, parrots have the cognitive ability of a young child. They go crazy left home alone. So this is a web browser for parrots. Um, the, the parrots loved it, let them surf the net, you know, talk to other parrots. Uh, this was an alarm clock you wrestle with and have to convince the alarm clock that you're awake. Um, uh, this was a student project with the dress instrumented with sensors and spines, and they would defend your personal space if somebody got too close. And this happened so consistently year after year that I realized the students were answering a question I hadn't asked. We were doing research, and the class was teaching digital fabrication, but we hadn't asked what's it good for, and that they were showing is the killer app of digital fabrication is 
personal fabrication. So uh, this is Ken Olson, uh, head of Digital Equipment Corporation. So, so the history is uh, MIT invented the first transistorized computer. That got commercialized as DEC PDPs. Those were used to invent the internet. At that time, the whole computer industry was outside Boston, Wang Prime Data General. Um, Ken very famously said, there's no reason to have a computer in the home. Uh, DEC failed, Wang failed, Prime failed, Data General failed. Every single one of those companies failed because they saw the computers as toys. And what's happening is you can look at these uh, fun projects and say, that's fun. Now let's get serious and talk about industry. But remember, personalization drove the digital revolution. And the whole point of this is they're not making products you can buy in a mass market big box store. They're making products you can't buy in the store. They're products for a market of one person. They're personalizing fabrication, which is every bit as important or more for making things as uh, in the digital world. So you may have heard about 3D printing. Uh, there's been a lot of press. I really don't like 3D printing. It's, it's overrepresented, it's overhyped, and it's a little corner of a bigger space. So if you go back, um, 3D printing was actually invented by, in the 80s by Chuck Hall. Um, it's not new, it's a little faster, better, cheaper, but it's, it's a few decades old. If you go further back, in 1952, MIT made the first computer-controlled manufacturing machine. At the time, early computers were just beginning to do things in real time rather than in batch. And there was a computer developed for uh, air traffic and radars, the Whirlwind, Project Sage. And somebody had the idea you could take this real-time computer that was designed for radars and connect it to a machine and turn the cranks and make parts you couldn't make by hand. And so computers controlling machines dates back to the 50s. Um, at that time, it was a really exciting period. So Claude Shannon at MIT wrote the best master's thesis I think anybody's ever written. In his master's thesis, he invented digital. It, 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 it's explicit. It's, it's digital. There's a very interesting history, but the digital world, as you know what it means, really came from Claude Shannon's master's thesis. So communication was analog. He made it digital. Um, another group a bigger group, John von Neumann and colleagues, digitized computing. Computer, uh, analog phones got worse with distance. We now have the internet. Analog computers were gears and pulleys, and they got worse with time. The longer you waited, the worse the answer was. Um, von Neumann digitized computers. You now carry a super what used to be a supercomputer in your pocket. Digital manufacturing started in the 50s, but it's not really digital. Um, the computer was digital, but it was just metal whacking away at metal. So I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about the research, where it's heading, so you can understand what's happening today. So the invention I'm more excited about is a little earlier. It's four billion years old. And that's when, in evolution, ribosomes were invented. The ribosome is my favorite machine. It's, it's a programmable molecular machine and it's a molecule that makes molecules. So I'm full of nanotechnology. I have motors that move my arm. I have light sensors in my eye. They're all made by programming the ribosome. And the, uh, a code, exactly like you understand a modern code, goes into the ribosome. It executes the code. 
It assembles parts based on the code, and it makes me and you. And that's what makes life possible. And so, if you look at the descendants of MIT's 1952 milling machine, there's laser cutters and 3D printers and all of that, and compare it to my favorite process, the one on the right. Um, does anybody here use Lego bricks? Good. So if you think about the Lego bricks, um, uh, let's see, what's your name? Luke. So when Luke plays with Lego, um, he doesn't need a ruler because the Legos have stubs, so you can put them relative to each other. Um, when Luke assembles the Lego, the tower of Lego is more accurate than Luke. Um, you can assemble bricks made out of dissimilar materials, and then when Luke is done with his Lego, he doesn't put it in the trash. He takes them apart and uses them again. None of those properties apply to laser cutters or 3D printers or milling machines. All of them apply to you, to molecular biology. The key insight is they're actually digital. There's information in the materials. So the technical revolution didn't start in the 50s. It's happening today. It's digitizing fabrication by putting information into materials. Now, that may sound semantic or may sound academic or abstract, but think about how the internet changed your life and think about how PCs changed your life. That's what we're living through. So I got so annoyed at government agencies asking me to advise their 3D printing programs. I worked with the White House to run a meeting with all the government agencies to talk about the research on digitizing fabrication. So let me show you a little bit about what that roadmap looks like. So um, we're going from computers controlling machines to machines making machines to coding and then programming materials. So uh, one step in, today you buy a machine, but my students are working on machines that make machines. And so uh, this is a fun one. Uh, these are two students, and this is a complete fab facility in a briefcase. You, you, you open the briefcase, and you can change the heads, and so you can print with it, mill with it, cut with it. It's a kind of a universal fab facility in a briefcase. Um, and what makes it interesting isn't the machine, it's what makes it, easy to, makes it easy to make the machine, to make rapid prototyping of machines. So after that, um, another version of those machines rather than having a fixed function, is just building blocks for machines. And so this is a machine building kit. And so these two students, um, one of my uh, students who works at NASA needed a wing. And so they put together a kit of parts, now not a fixed machine, but like a machine building kit, and then made a little script. And then what they just made was, in this case, a hot wire cutter to make airfoils. But the machine doesn't even have a fixed function. It's just a kit to build, it's a machines to make machines. And so they're cutting out airfoils with that. So that, that's one step in. Today you buy a machine, pretty soon you'll go to a facility like um, Shane's Makerspace and you'll make a new machine and you'll make a machine with the machines. Then the step after that is rather than just printing and cutting, if you go back to Luke's Lego, here's nano Lego we're making out of proteins. 
Um, this is micro Lego. Today, to make circuits, you need billion dollar factories. Um, this is electronic circuits made out of micro Lego and electronic material. Um, this is carbon fiber Lego like material used to make airfoils. And um, we're designing robots to make jumbo jets by crawling around, blinking the parts. And again, it's doing the same thing Luke does, meaning the geometry comes from the parts, you can detect and correct errors, and by joining them, we're working on building airplanes. And in fact, we have a project with Homeland Security to build landscape. Uh, storms like Hurricane Katrina do tens of billions of dollars of damage, and our national technical means is bags of wet sand. It has, so we're working on using these to make landscape on demand for emergency response. And so from nano to micro to macro, it's all based on really one idea of coding the materials, putting intelligence into the materials. And then the step after that is, this is now design of materials that can actually change shape. And so it's kind of life in engineered systems. We're designing codes you put into materials, and then you run a program in the material, and they turn into anything. And so at this stage, the machines go away, and the materials themselves are programmable. It, th this is like the Terminator, if you're familiar with that. And it's not accidental. There's actually a very interesting interplay between Hollywood movies and these projects I can tell you about. So take that quick skim and now step back. Um, there were mainframes for computing, then came mini computers, and this is one of my favorite pictures. Uh, this is Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie at Bell Labs, and what they're doing in this picture is inventing Unix, which is the operating system, most modern operating systems descend from. So if you have an iPhone running iOS, it's a descendant directly from what they're doing in that picture. And what made it possible is here, the computer was for a whole organization. It had to do inventory and payroll or something like that. Um, here, the computer was hard to use. It filled a room, maybe $100,000, but it was small enough for a work group. So they could have one at Bell Labs that they could figure out what to do with and not have to use the whole corporate planning. Then came hobbyist computers, like this Altair. Um, it was life transforming uh, for people like me. The Altair, the killer app was you would flip switches on the panel to load a binary program, then you would run it and the lights would blink. <laughs> Life-changing. Um, because it was the first really personal computer you could own, and then came the PC. Now, the PC to understand is a really big step. In the PDP, it wasn't a computer. There was a processor rack, a storage rack, an I.O. rack, all sorts of cables, all sorts of software to get them to work together. In the PC, there's a power subsystem, there's a graphic subsystem, there's a storage subsystem. Uh, there's uh, all these components integrated in one box. So from your perspective, there's just an on-off switch and there's all that stuff working in it. It was a very big step. So now, today, MIT's 1952 NC mill, um, Fab Labs, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about, the machines that make machines, and then this leads up to the replicator. And so the research I showed you, I skimmed through, is about a 20-year roadmap to the replicator. Coding construction, 
of functional digital materials with assemblers that make assemblers. That's the research we're doing, and we hope in a few decades it'll make a replicator. But what you should learn from this history is, in many ways, the really interesting point wasn't here, it was up here. This is the moment when the internet was invented, when the whole sort of modern computing era came out. It, the internet didn't come after the iPhone, it was in this mini-computer era. And from this point forward, the number of computers, the number of internet hosts went from one to two to four to eight to 16. It went through this doubling, and it, it looks like one day kind of boom, it's there, but it doubles for many years. And so we are today at exactly this point. We're about 10 years into the doubling. It's just kind of breaking that threshold. In 20 years, it'll all fit in your pocket, but you don't need to wait 20 years for it. And so the way I learned that is we were doing this research. The class, this class was crazy. Hundreds of students would show up begging to get in. They would say things like, uh, it seems too useful. Are you allowed to teach it at MIT? <laughs> um, and it had such an impact. Uh, Congress passed a new law to telling NSF it had to measure social impact. NSF turned to big grantees like us because NSF didn't know how to do it and told us to measure social impact. We didn't know how to do it, but we thought the machines were cool. So rather than telling people about it, um, we decided we'd give them to people. Fab Lab in Boston South End that provides free access to digital fabrication machines for local children, teens, and entrepreneurs in the community. We set up a community lab that was in between the research tools on campus and the Star Trek replicator in the future. It was maybe $50,000 worth of machines, and that was the whole project. But Gershenfeld's whole project soon got a whole lot bigger. <laughs> when MIT and the National Science Foundation were asked to set up a Fab Lab in Ghana, and that was just the beginning. They started doubling. There are about 200 now. They've been doubling about every year and a half. They're above the Arctic Circle in rural villages in Jalalabad in Afghanistan, in shanty towns. Every time we opened one, somebody else wanted one. The labs get used for education, learning skills. They get used for creating businesses. They get used for play. They get used to make art. Then we link them globally with video and online content. Around the world, people are benefiting from these fab labs, and the potential for this technology seems limitless. So all of that was an accident. And already, there's, it's, it's wrong. There's about 400, not 200. So we opened just one in inner city Boston, in a community center. There was a strong Ghanaian community in Boston that led to opening one in Sakandi Takaradi on the coast of Ghana. From Ghana, there was a strong South African connection that led to opening one in Pretoria and then Soshengovi in Apartheid-era township outside uh, Pretoria. That led to a strong Indian connection that brought one to uh, Pabal outside Pune, um, outside Mumbai. Each of these places, I didn't, didn't wake up in Boston thinking African shanty towns need precision fabrication, but every time we opened one, somebody else wanted one. And so everything you see here was made here. This picture was taken at a lab in Vestmanair, Iceland. If you've seen pictures of a town being destroyed in Iceland by a lava, that's this one. Uh, it's this little volcanic island off the coast of Iceland, and bright kids leave as quickly as they can, but now they stay because in this lab are design tools, 3D scanning, printing, precision, um, 
machining, tooling, molding, casting, circuits, cutting, lasers, uh, large format machining, furniture, composites, electronics, uh, global video connection. And so with all of that, uh, this picture is about $100,000 of stuff in that room. You can make all of this, custom skateboards, kayaks, uh, bicycles, whole houses, antennas, radios, healthcare sensors, consumer electronics, production tooling, everything you see here was made in that facility. And so we're up to about 400 of these labs now, from the bottom of Africa. To th this one is one of my favorite ones. It's, it's a few hours above the Arctic Circle. It's so far north, satellite dishes look down, not up, because that, that's where the satellites are. Um, and so with that spread, then the labs started appearing in these amazing places. So uh, this is one in inner city Detroit where Blair works with at-risk youth, kids in the juvenile justice system, teenage pregnancy, things like that. And this lab is very successful commercially, and what funds it is he takes those kids, teaches them to make stuff, transforms their lives, and delivers better life outcomes than the social services they were getting. And so the lab is funded uh, as a social service for the impact on the lives of the kids. Um, this is a really interesting one in Alaska, working with Native Alaskans. Great cultural tradition, design sense, terrible alcoholism, unemployment, suicide rates. And so we're working with them to take traditional crafts, meeting modern prototyping tools. Um, this is a beautiful lab in Haystack. It's one of the nation's most revered arts colonies. It's a retreat for the world's uh, greatest traditional handicraft artists. So uh, glass blowers and printmakers and fiber artists. And initially when we brought the machines there, there was a riot of half of the artists were horrified were intruding in craft with these machines. Um, the other half of the artists were horrified at the artists who were horrified, <laughs> saying, it's all technology, you're kidding, this is just new technology, what matters is what you do with it. And in fact, the way it gets, now, that, now that's in the past and all the artists fight over access to it. Um, there was one interested in the light on the main ocean, and so we turned that into tooling to slump glass that sparkles like the main ocean. Or um, these were sketches turned into rapid prototyping processes to make intaglio printing plates. All of these, the, the computer isn't a design tool, it's a, it's a way to transform things into things that the artist didn't have access to. Uh, this is a lab literally on the Protestant Catholic boundary in Northern Ireland. Uh, there was EU funds for post-Troubles reconciliation, and they really didn't have good things to spend it on. They built like a bridge. It, and so in this lab, Protestant and Catholic kids come, and it doesn't matter where they're from, which side of the fence they hang out and make stuff. Um, this is one in Giza, and uh, during the Morsi riots, we called really concerned to see if they were okay here, and they kind of laughed and said, oh, it was a great day. Um, because the bright, inventive kids who had no interest in sectarian head bashing took it as a day off and they went to work in the lab. Um, uh, this is one in Barcelona. This was started by artists, architects, and designers who felt like the engineers were getting engineering wrong. Uh, and so, um, one of the most ambitious projects they did was rapid prototyping of a house. So the same way you make playhouses, they're using the rapid prototyping tools to make a full-size house as a construction kit. 
so this was for the European Solar Decathlon. It, um, they made the house, including all the furniture in it, as a really big rapid prototyping project. So in turn, the founder of that lab is now the city architect of Barcelona. And the connection is Barcelona has this fabulous design sense. Like this is Gaudi's Sagrada Familia. And 50%, over 50% youth unemployment. A whole generation doesn't get to work. Huge disconnect. And so once a year, these labs all over the world meet. Uh, uh, this summer, we brought 50 countries to Barcelona. And uh, what's happening is each of these is a district in Barcelona. And through Vicente, the city is putting fab labs in every district in the city as urban infrastructure. You expect the city to provide electricity, clean water, pick up your trash. What they're saying is the means to make stuff is part of the infrastructure of the city. Rather than being at the end of a long supply chain and going to a big box store, means to create is actually part of the infrastructure of the city. And so what's happening in this picture is this is Barcelona's mayor. And growing out of that project, uh, he's pushing a button here starting this countdown, which is 40 years to self-sufficiency. Barcelona, uh, they describe it as a pedo de dito. Pedo is products in, trash out. Ships come in the harbor with containers from uh, mass manufacturing in the Pacific Rim, passes through Barcelona and leaves in trucks going to dumps. So the city is a product to trash conversion device. And what they want to do is data in, data out. The atoms stay in the city, but the bits come and go. So they produce the products they consume. And with Barcelona broadly defined, they also want to uh, produce food, they want to produce energy. They want to use all of these technologies so that they're globally connected for knowledge, but they're self-sufficient locally. Uh, the city can produce what it consumes. Uh, Barcelona was the first city to make this pledge. Now a number of other cities are looking at joining them and doing this. Um, and if you're interested, the next one of these gathering is in August at MIT, hosted with Boston, Somerville, and Cambridge. And this meeting is one of my favorite events because in this picture are makers, fab labbers from 50 countries, rich, poor, north, south, east, west, sort of one of everything. It's the most multi-everything group I know. But what's so great is it's basically all the same person in all these different packages. All the cultures, all the traditions, but it's really all the same kind of tinker, inventive, maker person. Um, this is a mobile lab we set up. So it's a whole fab lab in a trailer so we can drive it around the country in places like the capital. Um, and this is a very interesting person uh, visiting it. And um, let me, he'll describe this. I'm United States Congressman Bill Foster, and I'm one of the few members of the United States House of Representatives who was a scientist before entering politics. So I often tell people that I represent about one-third of the strategic reserve of physicists in Congress. But when I came into work each day in physics, my first stop often wasn't to my office computer or some meeting, but to the laboratory machine shop to check on the progress of some parts that I designed for an experiment or for part of an accelerator. So I can think that, I believe I can safely say that I'm the only member of the United States Congress that knows how to program numerically controlled machine tools. 
I'm proud to announce that I recently introduced legislation in the United States House of Representatives which supports the goals and mission of the National Fab Lab Network as in the best interests of our people and the best interests of promoting the goals of greater science and technical education, greater access to research and production tools, and empowerment of individuals to understand and use technology to improve their lives. You can think of the NFLN as a new kind of national lab in the United States that's a cloud laboratory, a national network of connected local labs. I've been lucky to have the chance to visit Neil and see the progenitor of all fab labs myself. And to so this bill in the House and Senate charters, it's, it's a public-private partnership and it charters, which is the same thing that set up Little League Baseball or the post office, things like that, as saying, in the national interest is having a national network of local labs. Instead of a national lab being a billion dollar thing far away, it's connected to communities. But any one community doesn't know how to do it. You need to build the in infrastructure locally to make that into a national program. And in fact, um, the first big commitment to this came from Chevron uh, that made a $10 million grant to the Fab Foundation to set these up in the communities where it works as investments in capacity you know, in all of these functions. So in turn, uh, this is Bill Foster, this is Rush Holt, the other physicist in Congress, and John Holdren, the science advisor. And what's going on in this picture was a pretty amazing event. We, we brought for the White House Maker Fair a mobile lab and literally it's parked right outside the Oval Office. This is maybe the most sensitive place at the White House. People with White House badges can't go there to be right outside the window of the Oval Office. And we had all of our big lasers and giant machines there. So the guards were going crazy. Um, but Obama loved it. And what's going on, in, and, and he was waving off his handlers because he wanted to spend more time in the lab. What's going on in the picture, the surface is obvious. He's celebrating all this maker stuff. But the background is really what's going on is saying a lot of traditional manufacturing is Wang Prime and Data General. It's going to get blown up by personal fabrication. The new jobs aren't coming back to the old factories in the same way that the new computing didn't come back to the old computer companies. It's really a new economy emerging and the administration is shining a light. Now, he can't say you're Wang and Prime and Data General, but you can do this by demonstration to highlight the impact of this. Um, so economically, the Industrial Revolution started in Manchester, England, and left. Their economy's been a mess. Um, this is a wonderful fab lab in Manchester. These are all entrepreneurs starting businesses out of the fab lab there. Now, in starting the businesses, they could come up with a product and ship it out for mass manufacturing. But the more interesting thing is they could send the plans for this to any lab anywhere else in the world, and what they design can be made everywhere in parallel. And in their lab, they can make designs from anywhere in the world. So you can go to market by shipping data, not just shipping uh, boxes of things. Um, this was a lab, one fab lab, one community lab, this small size I'm describing, in Denmark, and they counted up. They had spun off a few hundred million euros in turnover, about a thousand jobs out of this community lab uh, created. Uh, at the meeting in Barcelona I was showing you, one of the reporters for the big national paper was covering it, and she ended up kind of yelling at me mad. She's saying, yeah, this is all fine, but you don't have the unemployed here. 
sort of referring to this class, the unemployed. And I explained to her, everybody at that meeting had created a job. They, they, they were not, they weren't unemployed because they had created new work rather than getting jobs in, in traditional factories. Uh, the White House Science Advisor Council has identified a shortfall of a million science and technology students we need to produce as a country. This clearly helps fill that because it's so exciting and so much fun. But more than that, this is a graph of employment versus time of bachelor's degree, associate degree, or high school grads, really showing this divergence of even if we produce the STEM grads, our economy is diverging. And what's coming out is when you think about manufacturing and work, you have a picture of something like this. But in all these different ways, what's coming out is this is the future of manufacturing. Th think about a job in a factory. You travel from home to go to a place, making something designed by something, somebody you don't know to sell to somebody you'll never see, doing an operation you don't really want to do, to make money to go home to get things you want. Um, you can, you can kind of shortcut that and just make what you want. <laughs> and so, remember that this whole notion of being at the end of long supply chains, buying products from catalogs, is not a fact of nature, and it's not, in fact, a fact of human history. It's a relatively recent invention. And if anybody can make anything, it doesn't just help businesses, it really fundamentally challenges our notion of business and our notion of work. And so when you see settings like this and, you know, kids like this, it's not just education, it's not just outreach, it's really creating new ways of working. But in turn, we had a problem. Um, uh, this was Valentina doing a surface mount rework in a coastal Ghanaian village. And this is Hans Christian in an Arctic village making robot trucks. And they're just so far ahead of their local schools we, had, we then had a problem, they were falling off a cliff. And so we started a thing called the Fab Academy um, uh, to teach kids to work in fab labs because the schools were failing them. And what we didn't want to do is say, you're smart, you have to leave now and take them away. And the way you can understand how this works is um, MIT is like a mainframe. You go to MIT and get processed. And it's based on scarcity. We assume the books are scarce in the library, so you have to go there to read them. The tools are scarce, you have to go there to use them. The people are scarce, you have to go there to see them. And so we fit a few thousand people out of a billions on the planet. Uh, there's a lot of attention to massive online classes, and I really don't like them. Uh, they're kind of like, in computing terms, time-sharing. They're still a mainframe of knowledge, and you're a terminal connected to it. And one person looking at a computer screen, it really isn't education. So the way the Fab Academy works is students have peers in work groups with mentors surrounded by machines locally, and then we connect them globally by video and by content sharing. And so, in internet terms, it's like a network. It's an educational network. Uh, digital communication lets you see people at a distance. Digital computing lets you access knowledge at a distance. 
The crucial connection between education and fabrication is digital fabrication lets you bring the campus to the student rather than the student to the campus. If you take any one of these labs, once you have the basic set of machines, you can then download the rest. You can make what you need on demand, and you can design stuff and send it to other people. And so breaking the boundary between bits and atoms with digital fabrication connected to digital computing and communication fundamentally transforms education. If you look at that lab in Vestmanair, Iceland, you know, maybe half of work done at MIT technically, you could do there. It, it has the kind of tools I came to MIT for, and maybe half of the work there need much more advanced tools. And so you can really think ultimately about a much more distributed approach to advanced uh, technology and education. And so, stepping back now, uh, digital fabrication, the deep meaning of it is digitizing fabrication by putting codes into the construction of the material. That's what I started with. That may sound abstract or semantic, but it's a moment just like digitizing communication and computation. That's the research leads to the replicator. But the history lesson is um, if you go from the mini computer to the iPhone, it didn't happen discontinuously. Just every year it got faster, better, and cheaper, and better integrated. So, a 3D printer isn't a fab lab. It makes a little piece of plastic. It can't make boats and bicycles and radios. It's one of the machines. But each year, all of this will get a little faster, better, cheaper, get better integrated, and eventually be a molecular assembler in your pocket. But the lesson from history is, I thought technically that was hard. And in fact, in a sense, it isn't. We know what to do. We're, we're making progress on it. What's hard is this whole story I didn't expect. And everything I told you about that isn't my insight. It's, it's what happened. It's how the world reacted. Digital fabrication is possible today. Almo anybody can make almost anything in the ways I described. It'll get faster, better, cheaper, but it's here today. And if anybody can make anything, it means how we organize education, entertainment, industry, doesn't really make sense. It really challenges all of them. So consumers can become creators. And ultimately, and for me, this is the most exciting part of all of this, is in all these crazy places around the world, we're finding exactly the same profile of bright, inventive people. And it means this leads to tapping a bigger fraction of the planet's brain power. So with that, there's background here. Thank you, and I'll be happy to take questions. bring them over here so that we can and address uh, those questions to uh, Professor Gerstenfeld. Here's, here's one that's coming from Twitter, and, and this is a real innovation for us this year. Uh, fab Labs can change the world, but how do we ensure ethical handling of widespread use? 
Um, what we've seen is you could make bad things in Fab Labs, and you might have heard about things like 3D printing guns. What we've seen, though, first, you should understand 3D printing guns was a silly media hack. I mean, it was an interesting media hack. The reason it's a media hack is the 3D printed gun is a really bad gun, and in workshops all over Lincoln, Hobbyists have been making guns in workshops for years. So being able to make a gun isn't new. The 3D printer is a way to make a particularly bad gun that was done as very pretty openly as a media hack. Um, we have these labs in war zones, in places of really serious conflict. And what we've seen is hurt, hurting people, doing harm, is a mature market. It's a very well-met need. In, in just about any part of the world, it's easy to get guns and bombs and weapons. And you could make guns and bombs and weapons, but the people who want to make them already have really good technology and they're everywhere. And so in general, like the story I told about Giza, is what we find is the people who wanted to bash heads in Giza were off doing that. The lab ends up attracting the bright, inventive, interesting people who don't want to do it. It's an alternative. And so... You know, I do believe in the wisdom of people rather than organizations. And so there's a nice, you know, I believe there's a nice story about empowering individuals rather than kind of top-down control. But I think the best answer is just an empirical one that we really haven't seen a lot of creepy stuff because the creepy people who want to do creepy stuff already have their needs met. Um, the labs are getting used to do other things. Chevron's involvement screams subsidies and lobbying. How do you keep big business out of national fab lab, out of the national fab lab network? So um, there are a number of big companies like Chevron who've been involved, and it, it's part of a very serious commitment to corporate social responsibility. Uh, we welcome it because there aren't control points here. So one of the interesting things is um, we've been working very closely, and this is also picks up from the last question, with uh, groups like Homeland Security and the FBI on security implications of this. Because there's factions that have been saying, oh my God, this is dangerous. Um, uh, I was briefing a room full of uh, army generals, uh, uh, the brightest upcoming army generals about all of this stuff, and when I got to this part, at the end, half of them said, my God, we have to classify it. <laughs> and it was this interesting moment because the other half of the army general said, my God, we have to get this out as quickly as possible um, because this is the best single thing we can do for building community and all of that. And, but where it ended is there's nothing to control. <laughs> if machines make machines, there aren't points of control. You may know that color copiers, when they came out, had codes put in them because of concerns about counterfeiting. And so color copiers have little cryptography hidden in the dot pattern. So parts of the government that knew about this could trace which color copier used it. Et so big invasion of privacy done completely secretly. Um, you could do that because there were clear points of control. There were only a few makers of color copiers. Today, machines that make machines, fab labs, makerspaces, 
don't have points of control. So when you know, Chevron works with us to set up labs and communities where it works, it's investing in social impact and nobody's in control. You sort of have to set it up and let go. And part of what we do to make this work is work with these companies to understand if you do it behind a fence with rules, with control, you'll spend the money and nothing will come. You really have to do the social engineering to match the technical engineering. And so what's made this possible is this viral growth. Um, the story I told you in Barcelona, uh, it's being replicated all over Europe in places where the economy is broken. And there's a young generation coming up that's just kind of giving up on their elders. When I talk to heads of state and CEOs, they're kind of depressed and don't know what to do. When I talk to this young kind of maker generation, they're just kind of zooming along. And so in an interesting way, Barcelona has kind of left Spain and Europe, not as Catalan separatism, but just as irrelevance, that Madrid and Brussels can't do much for them. And so it's, it's a fair concern, but the response to the concern is the kind of leakiness of this, that it's not a technology anybody can own. Another question, where can one find funding to open or start a fab lab uh, in your local community uh, or even internationally? So what makes it hard isn't funding, it's organizational capacity. Um, to relate the scales, my lab is maybe $10 million in machines that includes things like electron microscopes and microtomography scanners. Within that, there's a workshop that has maybe a million dollars in machines that includes like, things like water jet cutters and wire EDMs. Within that is the Fab Lab that's about 100K. In turn, with the Fab Lab, you can make still smaller machines or buy still smaller machines. So $10,000, so $1,000 lets you get a machine that does something. Around $10,000 is a nice, useful machine. The scale of a Fab Lab at 100K we found is a really nice natural scale that lets you make not one thing, but most things, a wide range of things. It's a little bit like you wouldn't want in your town library to have to decide, do you want to have fiction or history? There's just kind of a set of knowledge you expect in the library. And so in that same sense, there's a set of tools you want in the Fab Lab. Um, the issue with funding them we found is we had a lunch today with a lovely group of business uh, leaders from the area. And I think any one of the people in the room could easily write the 100K check to buy this. What's harder isn't that, it's, it's two tons of stuff that comes from a global supply chain with a lot of both commercial and also not quite commercial emerging products, some very specialized materials, new emerging software. There's, there's a lot of logistics, knowledge, things like that to make it work. And so it, the problem we find is less where does the money come from, it's more where does the knowledge and capacity come from. So initially I did that out of my lab at MIT. I would hijack government grants to help support it. Um, that doesn't scale. Uh, we spun off a fab foundation to provide that capacity, but it's really just a thin wrapper around regional programs. So like the Barcelona lab I mentioned now supports a network of labs in the city and then a network of labs in Spain and southern France. And so in the same sense, you could imagine the new makerspace coming here, not just being a campus resource, but helping anchor one of these regional programs so that when there is the funding, um, you have the skills and the knowledge and the capacity to be able to spend it. 
does intellectual property have a place in the future you describe? No. Um, but to explain, uh, music was owned by the labels. Digital music came, they were terrified. Music had digital rights management. It annoyed honest people. It was easily circumvented by dishonest people. Uh, now you can go to Amazon and buy music without digital rights management because they gave up but made a business making easy to buy and sell music. Now if you look at the music tracks, they're still the big labels, but arguably that's the least interesting music. The most interesting music are tracks made by groups for themselves, for their friends. There's tiers of 110, 100, 1,000. Uh, up to a, you know, millions where that weren't economically viable where you can now buy and sell music. So software was owned by big software companies. Um, open source came. There was copy protection on software that was irritating. Everybody gave up. Now you don't protect software as a scarce resource. You, uh, in open source software, you freely share it, but you, you have authorship and you make businesses out of how you add value. So, in one case, data becomes sound. In another case, it becomes an app. Now it'll become a thing. When I make new ways to make jumbo jets, I file patents, because it's a billion-dollar investment, and only a few companies can practice it. Anything you make in a fab lab, you can have a patent, but the patent is useless, because to enforce it, you need to identify infringement, and you need to be able to act on infringement. And if anybody in any fab lab can make it, it means you have to serve a summons on the planet. So it's just not enforceable. But it doesn't mean there aren't businesses. It doesn't mean you give it away. It's exactly what we've been through with music and software. You freely share the designs, but you make businesses by how you add value with it. Do fab labs create food? Ah, so food is a great question. Um, uh, there's a really interesting mix happening between hacker makers and food. And to go back to this Barcelona example, or the Detroit example, um, in the Detroit lab, uh, they're doing a lot of work on bringing all of this technology into food production. So what makes large-scale agribusiness possible isn't slaves, it's precision agriculture. It's all the technology throughout the whole food production pipeline. What's happening now is a number of these fab labs are tackling food. So the one in Detroit is working on things like hydroponics and aquaponics and uh, vertical farming and precision agriculture, but not in the fields of Nebraska in Detroit. And so a number of labs are starting to look at how all this technology impacts food production, which shouldn't be surprising, because again, think about um, uh, precision agriculture and the impact that's had, but now not doing it in Nebraska to feed the planet, but doing it locally. So, so local sites um, doing food production. And so food is just becoming cool. It's, it's becoming a subject of a lot of interest and attention in the hacker world. It's not a back to the past, just saying make gardens. It's precision agriculture, high efficiency food production, using all of this technology. How will the maker economy impact higher education? So I alluded to, uh, 
if you search, you'll find a few years ago, I, I actually wrote an essay called Is MIT Obsolete? about exactly this point that if you look at all the things I came to MIT for, some of them are still there, but bit by bit, many of the things I thought I needed MIT for, you can do in this more distributed way. So the, the sequence is, I got the machines to make Center for Bits and Atoms. I had to teach students, and so that led to the How to Make class. The How to Make class went crazy. That led to Fab Labs. We initially had uh, Fab Labs sit in on the MIT class. That got too big, so we started this Fab Academy. The Fab Academy is now succeeding, and what's happening now is there's interest in using it to teach other classes, not just digital fabrication. And so there's a project, and the name was a joke initially, but it's sticking, called the Academy of Almost Anything, which is using this network. And the second class that's going to start next fall is going to be in biotechnology. And it's going to be not how to make anything, it's going to be how to grow almost anything. And what we're doing is we're, we're, we're probing. I have my day job at MIT where I use amazing machines with amazing people. Um, and then there's this Fab Academy and Fab Lab network. And the Fab Lab network is kind of pushing that boundary to ask what needs to be done at a place like MIT versus what can be done in this very distributed way. And I had an interesting visit with the chairman of MIT's corporation who came by to see what this was all about. And I, I, you know, I mentioned there is a little bit of a disconnect between the stuff on campus and this global stuff. And he just kind of smiled. Uh, and, uh, and his comment was, that's how you change organizations. Changing MIT on campus takes many, many years. It's like steering an oil tanker. Sort of changing the world is easier, and then eventually places like MIT can catch up. And, and that, that's, that's how organizational change happens. And so I think these educational networks, you know, in steps you'll probe outreach from campus, but these new educational networks will really sort of nip at the edges and challenge what higher education needs to do. And I think we're going to end up with a much more blended model. Do you consider the Fab Lab a social enterprise with how it provides so much to those who may have so little? If so, did you have the concept in mind of creating a social enterprise when you uh, formed the idea of the Fab Lab? Uh, yes and no. So the, the no is, remember, Fab Lab started for one purpose. I needed to shut NSF up. That, that, that they made me do outreach. I didn't want to do outreach. I wanted to get back to work in the lab. I was going to set up this lab at a photogenic community center. Uh, we could check off that box and we could all go back to work. And the rest was an accident. So certainly wasn't my vision. But there's no question that this... So all labs that fabricate aren't... Fab Labs, the idea of this Fab Lab network is it really works as a network. It's a, it's a common set of cap evolving capabilities shared around the world with programs linking them. And over and over and over, and it relates to many of the questions, any single site isn't a critical mass. They don't have the skills, capacity, all of that to do it. The power comes from the network. And so there's no doubt that this is really a story about uh, people. It, it's not the machines, it's the people. Uh, 
at heart, what it's about is, this series is about innovation. There's a lot of discussion of innovation. Uh, innovation is one of the words I really cringe when I hear. Because uh, innovative people are really strange, generally. They, they, they don't follow rules. They don't behave well. They're just, you know, they're odd. And, you know, I, I think MIT's core competence is it's a safe place for strange people. People like that fit. Um, and an awful lot of things called innovation are shiny, structured facilities that are hostile to strange people doing odd things. But, but that's how it works. Um, there's this amazing number. MIT spun-off businesses are the world's 11th economy. They're trillions of dollars. And very little of that was designed to make money. It was all sort of these quirky people um, driven not by dreams of wealth, but vision for things they wanted to accomplish. And so, at heart, what makes this whole story work is these fab labs, these maker spaces, are safe places for strange people. They're places where inventive people fit. And, and around that, there's a context of how do you pay for it and how do you train them and how do you do it safely and how do you create career paths. And so it really is the technical engineering that I thought was the project. In a sense, that's the easy part. The hard part is the social engineering. And so the question is absolutely right. In many ways, this is really a, you know, a, a social transformation project sort of hiding behind the technology. If Fab Labs can make anything from cheap materials, will entertainment and sports be the only fields and jobs? Will the only field with jobs? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, y yes and no. So it's an interesting question, but um, again, if you look at... Um, uh, software and look at music and look at video. So in each of those areas, um, you know, so newspapers, newspapers did news, blogs, wikis, forums came, the newspaper readers became the competitors of the newspapers, all but killed the newspapers, and now look at, I'm sure all of you have blogs or forums that you follow of content creators who aren't the New York Times, but have, you know, interesting content creators you follow. Um, look at software, you know, you could choose whether you wanted Microsoft or Apple or IBM. Um, now if you look at apps, you know, how many of you played Flappy Bird? Um, uh, you know, if you, if you look at apps, at how, you know, a single person as a content creator has a global impact, um, in each of these areas where we can digitally share content, over and over the lesson is content becomes king. And in each of these areas, consumers become the competitors of the incumbents. And so, um, certainly sports will continue, but content creation for stuff is just like that. You could design something and share it with the world. The world can design stuff you make, knowing who's designing what, buying, selling, giving, sharing. There's going to be a whole ecosystem of, you know, food hackers and uh, clothing hackers and furniture hackers. And we already see that beginning to happen. There's going to be all these new, new realms of content creation. And so 
you know, it's the spirit of the question, but, but now extending, crossing this, this digital to physical boundary. One last question. Uh, has product design been fundamentally improved by the expanded number of people uh, working in these labs? Sure. So uh, I did a keynote for the annual meeting of the Product Design Association, IDESA, and I, I yelled at them because if you look at something like the How to Make class, it includes 2D design, 3D design, circuits, microcode, input, output form, function programming. And that's not teams, it's an individual mastering all of that. And so increasingly design means expression across these means. It's not segregated where one person just writes code and one person just makes a shape means of expression have changed since the Renaissance. And so I yelled at them to say, you can no longer consider design just to be the segregated task. And afterwards, we had like a discussion with me, and the designers, some of them were literally in tears, saying, all my life I wanted to do that, but they wouldn't let me. And so um, for me, the, the, it goes back to the Barcelona story, and I'll end with it goes back to the Renaissance. The Barcelona lab started because the artists, architects, and designers felt like the engineers weren't getting it right. What it's leading to is a much deeper integration of design because it's done by an individual, not by a big corporate team. And so the beginning of the story that ends with me here now was in high school, I desperately wanted to go to vocational school because you could weld and, and fix cars, and that was really cool. And I was told, no, you're smart. You have to sit in a room. <laughs> and I worked at Bell Labs, and I had union grievances because I would try to make stuff, and they said, no, you're smart. You have to tell somebody what to do. And it was only when I could buy all the machines for myself that I understood this was a mistake in the Renaissance. Uh, the liberal arts emerged in the Renaissance, and this wasn't politically liberal, this was humanism. You're transformed by mastery of these means of expression. That was the trivium and the quadrivium, language, natural science. And that was the moment when the illiberal arts was separated and art forked from artisans. Artisans do the illiberal arts for commercial gain, Artists do the liberal arts, that's literacy. And so what's happening, the reason so much product design is so bad is the means of expression have changed since the Renaissance. And 3D machining and microcontroller programming is every bit as expressive as painting paintings or writing a sonnet, but they're means of expression that we froze in the Renaissance. And so you can view all of the story as ultimately fixing this mistake in the Renaissance we've been living with, this segregation of art from artisans, and finally bringing them back together again. Thank you. D down in the lobby, uh, you will have the opportunity to uh, obtain books, uh, which uh, Neil Gershenfeld will sign for you. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at the next uh, Thompson Forum uh, involving the British debate team with the UNL debate team. Thank you very much.